0: Hello, New York City friends and On Being listeners. I'm thrilled to share that On Being Studios will be doing two events as part of the Work It Festival from WNYC Studios. I'll be recording a live episode of On Being with poet and MacArthur Genius Fellow Claudia Rankin on the evening of November 12th. And our executive producer, Lily Percy, will be speaking with comedian and writer Justin Sayer on the night of November 14th. That's for our fabulous new podcast, This Movie movie changed me. Join us for these two conversations. Buy tickets now at WorkItEvents.com. That's WorkIt, W-E-R-K-I-T, events.com. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the
1: Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others,
0: and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I love Tracy K. Smith's deep interest, as she said, in the kind of silence that yields clarity and the way our voices sound when we dip below the decibel level of politics. She spent the past year traversing our country, listening for this, and drawing it forth as U.S. Poet Laureate. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I spoke with Tracy K. Smith at the invitation of New York's legendary Bene Jeshurun Synagogue, which has been in communal exploration on creating a just and redeemed social fabric. Tracy brought a stack of her books to read from if the inspiration came as we spoke, including her most recent book of poetry, Wade in the Water. So you were born in Massachusetts and raised in Northern California. I wonder how you would... Um, how you would begin to describe like the, the religious and spiritual background of your childhood Well,
1: um, I was born into a household where God lived <laughs> that 's what it feels like. My parents were both um, faithful people from the South. Um, I think they had different relationships to that faith, but they both came from the black church. And um, my parents were born in the mid-30s, and I understand that the community that the church fostered was spiritual and social. You know, there's the, the sense of, you know, God can make your life better. And if we can look out for each other, and if we can hold ourselves to a standard of discipline, it's going to be a lot easier to live in the segregated place. Mm. Um, So I think I got both strains of that growing up. Of course, I mean, a generation later, the political um, climate was different. But um, I think the sense of discipline and the sense that um, we owe something larger than ourselves our best was a big part of of what um, I was raised just Mm. knowing.
0: Yeah, and I think it's in that spirit and with that sensibility that you've moved out into the country this year. Which is, I love thinking about you out there in that spirit, like interacting. Um, And I just, you know, I want to, um, I want you to kind of tell us what what you're experiencing. I sometimes feel like there are, you know, there's the official story of our time, and the official conversation, the official conversation of our time. And it's strident and harsh and loud and fractious. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's a whole, there's this whole other narrative unfolding. And like, that's what you're looking at, listening for, participating in. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I wonder, you know, if you thought about it that way, like what, what story of our time have you been experiencing these years?
1: Yeah, it's been um, beautiful. I think again because it's it's poetry facilitates this thing that says, okay, we're not going to be talking at each other or speculating about each other, but rather opening ourselves up to something, a voice on a page, and talking about what that speaks to. Right. And so when you go out and you know into the country talking about poetry with people, we're cleaving to the certainties that poems alert us to and listening to the private story that poems remind us of. Uh, Does that make sense? Yeah. We're, we're, we're sharing something and, and leaning into each other to say, oh, well, this reminds me of my father. My relationship was a little bit different. It was like this. Um, and I feel like that's antithetical to the tenor of you know political conversation, which is adrenalized, which is full of all of these certainties, whether or not they're earned. And which is defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, this is about saying, oh, right, I feel something. What do you feel?
0: Yeah. So like, so you. I think you've been to South Carolina and right. I mean, these are some of the places I read about. And you started in New Mexico on an Air Force base. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, which was great. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was in the Air Force. And so it was exciting to be in that space as an adult. Um, it was odd to feel older than almost everybody you know like my father seemed so old when I was young and suddenly I see all of these people in their 30s yeah Yeah. and um I visited uh the Native American School of Santa Fe Mm -hmm. um where there's a really thriving sense of art and language um that's revered preserved and you know, like um, defended even in a way. Um, and that was exciting. It was beautiful to think that some of the ideas I have about poetry and, and the thing that happens when we listen together and allow ourselves to be moved together, it was exciting to hear that talked about in um, a vocabulary that had to do with actual faith you know, or with ceremony that the students and members of that community were familiar with. Mm -hmm. It stopped being metaphorical, if that makes sense.
0: Right. So um, I wonder if there's a poem that maybe you've read, you know, in 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 this time, kind of out with our fellow citizens, um that has changed for you because, I mean, whether you would read something, like maybe, oh, maybe sure. a poem that means something different to you because of the conversations it has sparked.
1: Yeah. Um.
0: This is a poem.
1: Um, it's sort of strange. Um, it's a metaphor-based poem. Um, it feels, even as I read it, that the metaphor is slippery. Um, I wrote it thinking about one thing, And then hearing people talk about it and ask about it, it's come to mean something else for me. So I'll read it first. Ash. Strange house we must keep and fill. House that eats and pleads and kills. House on legs. House on fire. House infested with desire haunted house lonely house house of trick and suck and shrug give it to me house I need you baby house house whose rooms are pooled with blood house with hands house of guilt house that other houses built house of lies and pride and bone house afraid to be alone house like an engine that churns and stalls house with skin and hair for walls house the seasons singe and douse house that believes it is not a house. Mm. So I wrote that poem thinking about the body, thinking about what it means to be alive in this human form and how strange it is that it's temporary, that we are not just the body but something else. Um and that 's the way I've read it the first many times that I read it, or at least what I heard myself saying. but there's a lot of you know like ambiguity in the poem, and so people have questions about it. Um, someone has told me it feels like a poem that more than just being in the body is about being a woman and and that sense of you know vulnerability and also sheltering something and then, because a lot of these poems in this book are thinking about nationhood and American history. Um, I was really excited to hear it described as a poem that is about the country as a house, Mm. taking us back to even Abraham Lincoln in the sense of a house divided against itself. But I love that readers, active readers, can give you a good enough argument to re-hear and see what you've made yourself.
0: Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a public conversation with the U.S. Poet Laureate, Tracy K. Smith. I want to dive in a little bit more to some of the things you said recently in this interview. Um, And you you were talking about this this time you're spending as Poet Laureate. You said, I think there are lots of places where we have something very clear, compelling, and welcome to say to one another. Uh, I'm interested in the way our voices sound when we dip below the decibel level of politics. So tell us how that sounds. (laughs) Like, tell us what you've been hearing. Well, um...
1: One of the things I'm struggling with is okay, it's going to sound different everywhere, mm-hmm. and so I there isn't a rural perspective um, that I can report on, which is great. I think that like underscores well, all. I of But I think the that's hope. actually part of it, yeah, right? Because exactly. it's not one
0: voice or one conversation. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I I remember um, some really lovely things. I remember in Kentucky talking. It was my first time in the state of Kentucky, and I was really blown away by the beauty of the landscape and just driving we did a lot of driving from one destination to another and seeing this beautiful undeveloped land with a few horses or you know houses that were so close to the miraculous you know beauty and and uh, I really wanted to know what that felt like what what people's um sense of allegiance to the natural world felt like there how much they were aware of it or whether it was so familiar that they didn't see it and I you know I was asking I was in a room with mostly mothers and and young kids in a library and um, the kids um, you know were interested in nature and interested in video games and all the things that you know all, all of our kids are aware of and the mothers that I spoke to said I'm excited that my kid has access to everything that everyone else has and I'm really scared too because they, they don't play in the mud the way that I used to um I don't know that they see what we have in the way that that I can even over you know the last few decades the small changes signal that maybe this is finite in some way to me, that felt really exciting. More exciting than saying, what's your take on environmental protection? <laughs> right, right, um, yeah. Like, what, what do you look out and see, and, and what does it make you want to do, or what does it make you, you know, long for, or, or want to, I don't know,
0: Yeah. protect yeah. in some way? I wonder, uh, have there been things... That this listening and this conversation, things you've learned about yourself that have surprised you. Um, I mean, actually, you know, one thing that was interesting to me is that you Wade in the water. Kind of was published, converged with becoming poet laureate, right, mm-hmm. and being out there. And you said that you were. I mean, what did you say? You were surprised to realize that this was a book that had a really political overtone. Like, what did you say? That that it that it. um that these are such American poems, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but that you yourself had not understood that until the book was being engaged with a wider world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It was really surprising to me. Um, But I think it, it also, it makes sense to me that the questions I have about the moment that we live in now, all of the difficulty we have in talking to each other about difference, about race, um, all of the ways that history, which once felt so remote, um, feels closer and active and unresolved, um, it makes sense that those are, those are questions that are on the surface of these poems and that looking back to history is an attempt to say, is there anything that we haven't yet heard that could be helpful now Mm -hmm. in unraveling this knot, um, I found myself listening to um, voices that come out of slavery in a way that I had never done before, in a way that I thought, oh, other writers are better at that. Other writers know how to tell those stories. But I, I was and I am interested in the very compelling statements of lived experience that blacks during the Civil War um, made to President Lincoln or to the Pension Bureau, um, and um, writing this book during a time where there was a lot of racial violence made yeah. those voices urgent to me in a new way.
0: It the, just the way you said that feels so important. Um, I mean, it, it feels like something I've, that's all around us, but you're putting words around it that that all one of the aspects of this moment is that things that felt farther away not that long ago feel so close and mm-hmm. so alive. Which I think often uh, comes to us as a terrible shock and feels like a failure. But it is also, it's a moment of reckoning, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you had that, that that sequence of Civil War poems, the, like the found poems. Mm-hmm. Would you read a little bit of, of that? Sure. Yeah, and just um, tell the story of those. Um, I never had a, a
1: kind of a curiosity um, about the Civil War. I had discomfort when mm. learning about it in school. Um, but I found letters and um, testimonies that black veterans had given after the war in an attempt to get their pensions. And again, that, that distance closed up. And um, I just said, if we could listen to these together, maybe we could feel something that could be really helpful. Um, so maybe I'll read you one section of a poem in which uh, family members are writing to the president about, right. about the experience of their enlisted um, family Excellent Sir, my son went in the 54th Regiment. Sir, my husband, who is in Company K, 22nd Regiment, U.S. Colored Troops, and now in the Macon Hospital at Portsmouth with a wound in his arm, has not received any pay since last May, and then only $13. Sir, We, the members of Company D, of the 55th Massachusetts Volunteers, call the attention of Your Excellency to our case. For instant, look and see that we never was freed yet, run right out of slavery, in to soldiery, and we hadn't nothing at all and our wives and mother most all of them is a perishing all about and we all are perishing ourselves i am willing to be a soldier and serve my time faithful like a man but i think it is hard to be put off in such doggish manner as that will you see that the colored men fighting now are fairly treated You ought to do this and do it at once, not let the thing run along. Meet it quickly and manfully. We poor oppressed ones appeal to you and ask fair play. So please, if you can do any good for us, do it in the name of God. Excuse my boldness, but please. Your reply will settle the matter, and will be appreciated by a colored man who is willing to sacrifice his son in the cause of freedom and humanity. I have nothing more to say, hoping that you will lend a listening ear to an humble soldier. I will close yours for Christ's sake. I shall have to send this without a stamp." for I hate money enough to buy a stamp. Hmm. I love the appeal to justice and, and goodness, you know, the, yeah. the sense that yeah. it's not just that, but it's also, it, you have to do the, the manly thing. You have to man up. Um, I was really just sort of like moved to see somebody who is enslaved saying, that they're willing to sacrifice their son in the cause of freedom and humanity, and suddenly those words are not abstractions. Mm-hmm. Or even the you know throughout these this letters, um, the sense of um, powerful metaphor that comes up in this attempt to make an urgent appeal. There's one one um, letter that a, a mother wrote uh, saying, you know, my son is the only help I have, and now he's gone. Um, I'm old and my head is blossoming for the grave. Mm. You know, just please help. Um, I didn't think there was any need for my voice to enter this poem. I just wanted to curate uh, a chorus of these other very compelling voices.
0: Yeah, there's such um, depth and dignity, and, you know, and it's, it's so different from a letter you can imagine anyone writing to a. Anybody in a bureaucracy now? What
1: is that? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's this really beautiful sense um, of belief in the tenets of democracy that are being offered by someone who's sort of locked outside of that promise, but seeing, you know, if Abraham Lincoln could make the right choice the doors to you know, freedom and humanity yeah. will open up will be inside of it and so maybe there's this sense I must believe that this is possible that was really kind of awe inspiring
0: yeah.
1: and maybe I, I like the idea that if we if we stop being cynical and if we believe that this thing we've built is built on something that's real and that's worth struggling for um if we hold each other to a higher standard maybe maybe we can open those doors again
0: After a short break, more with Tracy K. Smith. We're putting all kinds of great extras into our podcast feed. Lots of poetry, music, and a new feature, Living the Questions. You can get it all as soon as it's released when you subscribe to On Being on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton
1: Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest, most perplexing questions facing humankind. Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we going? To learn more, please visit templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on Being, today with the 22nd U.S. Poet Laureate, Tracy K. Smith. She's chosen to spend the past year traveling around the U.S. with a special intention to be in places where people live and poets don't routinely present their work. We spoke together at B'nai Jeshurin Synagogue in Manhattan and took a few questions from the audience.
1: Hi, so um, I'm Larissa Wall. I'm the Sed Ecker social justice program manager at the synagogue. I'm very delighted to be here. So this is for both Tracy and Krista. Um, Can you share some of your feelings and experiences in using poetry as a tool to catalyze difficult and transformational conversations? That question makes it sound like it's easy. (laughs) So, well laid out. Um well, I teach, you know, most of my experience even though I've been traveling a lot this year is in the classroom. And I try and urge my students to think that um the questions they have as people and as citizens can be processed by the writing of a poem. And so I ask them to to write sometimes about things they they haven't got their heads around things they don't understand, things that are unresolved, things that worry them. And somehow we get to think about the, th- the ideas and the themes and the facts. We're moved by them. Uh, we're made to see them in new ways. And we also get to think about what language is doing in the poem. And what excites me about poetry is that language insists upon what is not easy. A good poem isn't made of the first thoughts or words that come into your head. And a good poem is never going to follow the well-worn path of like habit. Um, and so language urges you to push against what you might think you know, what you might initially be inclined to draw from what you've observed. And even what you believe, and that's exciting because you're wandering away from the things that you feel confident of, and you're wandering into a place where, oh, maybe you're maybe you're not so right, you know, maybe you're vulnerable in ways that you hadn't anticipated, and maybe the vulnerability that you're willing to claim isn't the whole story. Yeah. Um, I love doing that, and I love that you know I, I get to teach in, in a place where you know it's a room of 10 or 11 people and we feel safe so we can go out on a limb it's harder to do that you know like uh with strangers but um i think the act of reading allows you to kind of quietly do that with mm. a voice that's that's not your own
0: I, yeah i mean i think i think i would just you know pick up on that word quiet that poetry induces a kind of meditative state, which can sound kind of abstract, but, but mm-hmm. what it is, is is it insists, there's something about the way language works in poetry that it insists that you reflect and, like, mull, right? Yeah. And so many of the, f- well, the forms of language with which actually we're, we're skilled and fluent and trained in make no space for mulling. Or even for, right. for admitting what you don't know. Even if you know you don't know them, it's, it's not built into to what you're presenting. Yeah. So poetry stops us, and it quiets us. And as you, I also love the way you said it. It turns us inside, but not... And it, it, is, it comes from our interior lives, which are underdeveloped in this culture compared to our exterior lives. Mm-hmm. I like that poetry also... Um,
1: it brings in different, like, words to, for thinking about things. Like yeah. I've, this poems I've been writing recently are trying to bring love into the conversation with, um, you know, like the political. Usually, we can get as close to love as tolerance when we're talking about policy, um, which is a very different thing. Yeah, you get a look on your face when you're tolerating something (laughs) that's not about embracing it. In the medical
0: context, tolerance is about the limits of thriving in an unfavorable environment. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, And I just think we can do better than that. You know, I'm I'm excited to say, okay, love isn't just flowers and hearts. Love is work. (laughs) Love is dangerous. Love is ennobling, but not in the easy, pretty way that we sometimes imagine that it is because love doesn't just exist between two people who have chosen each other. Um, And so I've been really interested in writing about compassion because I'm trying to learn it a little bit better, Mm. you know.
0: Mm. Yeah. And give us, create a public vocabulary for it. Yeah. That's something that's serious.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: How do you balance
1: outrage and sitting down for poetry or conversation with regards to the state of our nation and the treatment of black women? I think there is a value to outrage. I think that it activates a kind of power that we can choose to act upon. In art, I think that outrage might lead me to the page but it has to sort of go sit down somewhere else when I'm writing a poem Um, because I I really do believe this a a good poem isn't going to be the result of the certainty that drives emotions like anger and outrage if I know I'm right and they are wrong, my poem is going to be a tract but if I can say what are the the sort of weird spaces that are under imagined what are the the areas where i either am already perpetuating something that is part of what i envision as the problem or what are the imagined spaces i can enter into where i have to get uncomfortably close to that problem that's where something really i think interesting starts to happen i might finish a poem and see something differently, it doesn't necessarily change the sense of outrage that I might also feel, but it's illuminated something that um, that feels productive.
0: I think that discipline that you describe, you know, doesn't just apply to the writing of a poem, right Like somehow, outrage is justified, can be justified, it can be. Important, it can be a moral response, but finding how we let it drive us, and when we know, in fact, being motivated by it won't affect what we actually need to affect.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, even those two words—they feel so—they're—it's forceful. But it doesn 't feel creative yeah. or generative, yeah. and um, changing things is it's a generative act, I think. Um,
0: can I read a poem?: yes, yes. okay
1: um, there's a a photo that everybody's probably seen um, that came out of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement a couple of years ago, um, it's called Unrest in Baton Rouge, and it depicts a woman, her name is Aisha Evans, she's wearing this gauzy sundress blowing in the wind, and then on the other side of the frame there is a row of police officers in, in combat gear. And um, I was invited to write a poem about that image, which I saw and I felt something like certain and powerful when I saw it. But the poem had me think differently. Um, I had to come up with different terms for what I saw. And those terms pushed me to think about what we do or what we might do differently. Pushed me to think about, you know, fear, which is also, I think, part of that image differently. Unrest in Baton Rouge. Our bodies run with ink-dark blood. Blood pools in the pavement's seams. Is it strange to say love is a language, few practice, but all or near all speak? Even the men in black armor The ones jangling handcuffs and keys. What else are they so buffered against if not love's blade sizing up the heart's familiar meat? We watch and grieve. We sleep, stir, eat, love. The heart sliced open gutted, clean, love, naked almost in the everlasting street, skirt lifted by a different kind of breeze. It felt almost um, frightening to put love in the center of that image and to imagine that the officers, which to me seemed like the threat, were susceptible to something that's stronger than they are, which is love. Um, It made me also say, right, I mean, if I am going to love a stranger, or even my neighbor, I'm vulnerable to them. And I've got to say, okay, I know this is important to me, but I have to think about being faithful to what's important to you. And so... Framing it like that, I mean, the the terms in the poem changed my sense of what's at stake, not just in the photograph, but in in our interactions with each other. And that felt sort of scary (laughs) and productive.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a public conversation with the US Poet Laureate, Tracy K. Smith. I would like to talk about love some more because I feel like it's this paradoxical response to the moment, but and yet it's absolutely right. Yeah, it's symmetrical, right? It's the only thing that is symmetrical in in facing up to all the fear and outrage and what looks like anger and hate.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've gone so far in one direction that we've kind of exhausted yeah. that rhetoric, and so now we get to swing back toward what is enlarging and what I believe is eternal, which is. You know, it's not just this. You know, like celestial framework or holy framework. It's it's love is a life force. Love is something that animates a person, or two people, or a family, or a community. I um, I spend a lot of time looking at um, narratives. Of near death experiences there's one poem in this book that draws from that and I think that the fascination I have is that love is one of the it's like the central term that uh, people who die on the operating table and feel that they go somewhere feel that they're made to learn or remember something fundamental no matter who they are no matter what they believe no matter whether they ascribe to religion or not love is the word that's on their mouth, their lips when they wake up. Like, I remembered. It's just about giving this thing to everyone that I can. That's why I'm here. Um, It's exciting, you know? And I love that love is coupled with a sense of threat. Um, And yet, if we're willing to be larger than the fear that that incites, something great could happen.
0: Mm. Mm. And we have to kind of yeah, and I think we need we need a sensibility that allows us to get quiet and to to be patient, mm-hmm. um, to live into that, right? To grow into that. Because yeah. we're not we're not there yet. No, we're we're getting, I
1: mean, <laughs> some of us might be able to get there in small steps and in yeah. the day to day. And those small acts of saying, "Oh, I see, you must be feeling this. Maybe you're." Upset not because of me standing here, but because of something else that happened. Even that little leap of the imagination, I think, restores something.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that something manifests as a personal interaction, but in fact it, is, it has civilizational effect, right? If mm-hmm. it's something we all choose to take up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are versions of the universe where everything continues moving outward and touches everything else eventually. Um, I listened to a podcast that was talking about how the air, you know, the air that Christ breathed is still here circulating somehow. And um, I think that there's a way of thinking that the intentions that we bring to our actions Remain, and they have an effect too. Mm-hmm.
0: So I was thinking about this, you know, this great speech that John F. Kennedy gave in 1961. Do you know this about poetry? I don't know if I remember Oh, it. that's so great that I get to share this with you. So he said, when power leads man towards arrogance, poetry reminds him of his limitations. When power narrows the areas of man's concern... Poetry reminds him of the richness and diversity of his existence. When power corrupts, poetry cleanses. For art establishes the basic human truths which must serve as the touchstones of our judgment. Of course, you read this and you think, it is absolutely inconceivable to imagine a politician on any side of our political (laughs) boundary. Thinking anything like this, right? Yeah. Even to themselves, much less saying it in public. Um, so I thought that I had that thought, and then I was um, I was looking at um, you know the the story of you becoming poet laureate, and uh, and I saw that 2017, which is the year you became U.S. poet laureate, the first youth poet laureate that 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 seat was established and I thought okay right because you just think we feel like nothing good and beautiful can emerge certainly not you know even in the library of congress and and it's not true so there was this beautiful thing and you actually have taught, You said something about how meeting her, and what is her name? Amanda um, Gorman. Amanda Gorman, that it made you feel old in a lovely way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I feel that way a lot with, um yeah, Amanda's amazing. And I feel that way a lot when I meet members of her generation who have this beautiful sense of what is possible and this really, like, gorgeous sense of fidelity to... What is right and kind, and I love how um, my students and students like them are working to create more inclusive spaces. How they have a beautiful, um, ample sense of selfhood, the fluidity of self. Yeah. There's this—they're completely unafraid of the, you know, the things that terrified my generation, let alone my parents' generation. It's not, it's not real to them and they're teaching in their gentle yet urgent way, their teachers and their parents, how to look at things differently. I get so excited when I think these kids are going to grow up and their perspective on the world is going to make so much possible that right now is impeded by uh, fear, rigidity, a sense of, well, this is how things have always been done and this is what we can't stop doing. Right.
0: Right. There was a funny story. or I don't know what you didn't mean for it to be funny, but I think Elizabeth Alexander was asking you what, about your daily rituals. <laughs> I just really like that. You said, when I'm happy, I love to eat breakfast. And that, <laughs> that eating breakfast reminds you of these family breakfasts when you were growing up in a household of five kids. And then you said, when my heart hurts, breakfast is a cigarette sitting at my computer incessantly checking my email inbox. <laughs> oh. But somehow I... I, that idea of your heart hurting just that language I just feel like so many of us feel like that a lot of the time now as we close I, I think I, I I want you to read another poem or two but um just wonder right now uh, just right now this week like what, what makes your heart hurt and where are you finding hope?
1: Hmm. that's a I mean it, it's hard to question because there are a lot of things, right? What is the small, useful thing there's a, a poem maybe i'll I'll offer to share it because it it came out of like seeing someone who was so just her heart hurt I could see it, and there was something that made me so uncomfortable about observing that I wanted to say something or do something but I couldn't because that's rude and presumptuous and I also in writing a poem about this realized it wasn't just compassion that I felt I felt distaste or anger at the fact of her pain in my face Mm. and the poem pushed me to kind of figure out a little bit maybe about why so maybe I'll read this poem it's it's not generous um and then I hope that in its stinginess, it's, it's look, shining a shining light on me. It's asking me to do something that I need to do. Um, charity. She is like a squat old machine, off kilter but still chugging along the uphill stretch of sidewalk on Harrison Street, handbag slung crosswise, and, I'm guessing, heavy. And oh, the set of her face, her brows profound tracks, her mouth cinched, lips pressed flat, watching her bend forward to tussle with gravity, watching the birth she allows each foot as if one is not on civil terms with the other watching her shoulders braced as if lashed by step after step after step and her eyes determination not to shift or blink or rise I think I am you one day out of five tired Empty, hating what I carry, but afraid to lay it down. Stingy, angry, doing violence to others by the sheer freight of my gloom. Halfway home, wanting to stop, to quit, but keeping going mostly out of spite.
0: I think I'm, maybe one more poem. I was um <laughs> <laughs> We can't end on we that. We can't no. end on that <laughs> <But it's>, Yeah. <laughs> Even if we could, I want to hear another poem. <laughs> um, I love actually The Garden of Eden, I don't know, oh. the first poem in Wade in the Water, and here we are in New York. And I also just kind of like you standing on the cusp of the century. Mm-hmm. What are you what do you feel drawn to?
1: Um oh I um, have, uh, maybe I'll read the title poem. Yeah. Partly because yeah. it feels like the inverse of that awful scene okay. that I just okay. described. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then everybody should go away and read those other two. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a poem that comes out of an experience I had that was so beautiful because someone else saw me, and is committed to seeing other people. Um, I was in. Georgia, I attended a ring shout. Um, It was a trip where I was also visiting a lot of historical sites that had to do with the history of slavery. And um, it was a heavy trip. And then I got to this place and one of the women who was about to perform saw me and she said, I love you. And she gave me a hug.
0: This one, yeah.
1: (laughs) And I lost it. She didn't know me. She didn't know what I was dealing with, but that just that offering did something beautiful and, and, and painful and, and great. And she said it to everyone, um, but it didn't get cheapened by that gesture. And so I wanted to kind of like dwell in that sense of grace almost that she, she created. Um, her name is Bertha McKnight, and she's one of the Geechee Gullah ring shouters. Wade in the water. One of the women greeted me, I love you, she said. She didn't know me, but I believed her, and a terrible new ache rolled over in my chest, like in a room where the drapes have been swept back. I love you, I love you, as she continued down the hall, past other strangers, each feeling pierced suddenly, by pillars of heavy light. I love you throughout the performance in every hand clap, every stomp. I love you in the rusted iron chains someone was made to drag until love let them be unclasped and left empty in the center of the ring. I love you in the water Where they pretended to wade, singing that old blood deep song that dragged us to those banks and cast us in. I love you, the angles of it scraping at each throat, shouldering past the swirling dust motes in those beams of light that whatever we now knew we could let ourselves feel, knew to climb. Oh woods, oh dogs, oh tree, oh gun, oh girl run, oh miraculous many gone, oh Is this love the trouble you promised?
0: Tracy, thank you so much for representing all of us so well as Poet (laughs) Laurier. And thank you to B'nai Jesharan for having on being here tonight. Thank Thank you. Gracie K. Smith is the 22nd United States Poet Laureate, and she's the director of Princeton University's Creative Writing Program. Her works of poetry include Wade in the Water, Life on Mars, and Duende. Her memoir is Ordinary Light. She's written the introduction to a new book, American Journal, 50 Poems for Our Time, and she's launching a new podcast called The Slowdown. being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu,
1: Bethany Iverson, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lynn, Profit Adewu, Casper Ter Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, and Damon Lee.
0: Special thanks this week to Rabbi Shuli Passau, Larissa Wall, Adara Davis, Jeannie Blaustein, and the tremendous congregation of B'nai Jeshurun. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the George Family Foundation in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being
1: is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. And is a Krista Tippett public production.